Oh, hi, it's Ezra Levanta. I am over in Budapest, Hungary, doing a series of videos called The Truth About Hungary.com. I'd encourage you to check out that website for all of them. Today's podcast is an interview I did with the executive director of the Danube Institute. By the way, if you want to see the video version of this podcast, go to rebelnewsplus.com, click subscribe. It's eight bucks a month. You get the daily video version of my show. And of course, we need that money to survive. Unlike the CBC, we don't get money from Trudeau. Never will. So we rely on your eight bucks a month. All right, here's today's podcast. Tonight, I'm in Budapest to ask, what's the truth about Hungary? It's July 20th, and this is the Ezra Levant Show. Shame on you, you censorious bug. I've heard a lot of things about Hungary, but never firsthand. It's partly because the Hungarian language is so unusual. It has really no connection to English, whereas French, Spanish, Italian are all cousins of English, even German. And if you know English, you can pick up those other languages rather quickly. I find Hungarian to be impenetrable. It's just not related. And it's a small country, only 10 million people. So it's not a dominant force in the world. So what we hear about Hungary, we often hear through the filter of the media, which of course has its own agenda. I find that the media, and I think you'll probably agree with me, is globalist, is environmentalist, is critical Marxist on cultural issues like sexuality and gender identity. So a lot of the things that uh, Hungary is doing as domestic and even foreign policy are at odds with the groupthink of the United Nations, the European Union, and the world press. For example, their approach to immigration and refugee status is very different from the open borders approach of other European countries like France and Germany. Also, Hungary believes in its Hungarian ethnic identity. In fact, rather than tearing down statues, they're rebuilding them, including ones that were destroyed in the Second World War and never rebuilt since. So there's a lot of interesting things about Hungary that we can't find out by reading the New York Times or the Globe and Mail or CNN. And I'm here for about a week. I'm in Hungary, and then I'm going down to Transylvania, a region in Romania that used to be part of Hungary, where there's a gathering of ethnic Hungarians. I'm going to try and learn a little bit more. And if possible, I'll see if I can get a one-on-one -on -one with Viktor Orban, the prime minister himself, who's been re-elected four times, if I'm not mistaken. He's unpopular everywhere except in Hungary, and there's a reason for that. We'll try and find out. If you want to see all of our reports from Hungary, they're at a special website we put together called thetruthabouthungary.com. We crowdfunded our journey here, of course, as we always do. I'm here and Lincoln J, our videographer. And um, if you want to chip in, feel free to do so at thetruthabouthungary.com. We're going to put all our stories from Hungary on that website. And here is a one-hour interview I did. So that's a lot of TV viewing. It's with the executive director of the Danube Institute, which is an English-language-focused think tank that is designed to promote Hungary's interests and, frankly, the views of the government of the day. 
uh, conservative national identity, things like that. So he's coming from a point of view, and so am I. I thought it was an interesting discussion. Take a look and let me know what you think. Levant here from Rebel News. I'm in Budapest, Hungary for a few days. We're working on a special project called thetruthabouthungary.com. Why is Hungary important? Why would anyone in Canada, the United States, care about it? I mean, mathematically, it's a fairly small country, just 10 million people. It's hard to understand because the Hungarian language is very different from you know, the bundle of languages that we're used to in the West, English, Spanish, French, Italian, all very similar. It's impenetrable to follow things in Hungarian. There's not a large Hungarian expat community in the West. In Canada and the United States, there's a lot of Italian-Americans, Irish-Americans, who still have an affection for the home country. There are some Hungarians in the West, but there's very few. So why is Hungary important, and why should people in the West study it and maybe learn from it. And why are there forces in the West that seem to hate Hungary almost irrationally? Well, that's one of the things we're going to look into during our visit here to Hungary. And one of the stops that we made, and I'm so glad we did, is the Danube Institute, which is a think tank designed to promote Hungary in the debate I've just discussed. And I'm delighted to spend some time right now with Ishvan Kiss the executive director of the Danube Institute. Thanks very much for your hospitality. Well, thank you for having us. Well, it's a pleasure. And first of all, your office is incredible. You're in the Palace District, which has been completely rebuilt and renovated. Tell us a little bit about where we are in Budapest and what's going on, because I've really never seen anything like it. The scale of the renovation and the refurbishment of the national monuments. I think we're tearing down monuments in the West. You're rebuilding them here in Hungary. Yes, yeah, so I think it's a difference in attitudes towards our history. Uh, and I'm, I'm actually quite saddened about some of the uh, things going on in the West where you are, I think, trying to destroy or at least ignore, sometimes even rewrite your history. Well, this is uh, luckily uh, much less the case here. So we're in the castle district. Uh, which historically has been the, part, you know, the seat of kings and the executive. Uh, and sadly, the, as most of Budapest, uh, the castle district was very heavily hit during the Second World War. So a lot of the original palaces, uh, offices have been basically completely destroyed. Uh, and these never have been uh, you know, restored during the communist times. Uh, partly because of two reasons. One was they never really had the, enough resources, but the second one was actually ideological because the communist uh, uh, leaders of the country wanted to show the Horthy regime and even the Austro-Hungarian Empire as this very reactionary backwards power. So they actually uh, kind of tried to show the castle district as a medieval uh, palace. So they never uh, completely rebuilt uh, the, the palace, which was the seat of the Habsburgs when they were in Hungary, and also uh, uh, Governor Admiral Horthy during the uh, two world, between the two world wars period was also based in the palace. It was much more grandiose. Uh, and they never wanted to rebuild this, uh, and never wanted to rebuild some of these grand palaces and offices, because they wanted to show an image to the average populace that the castle was actually a medieval place, kind of hinting that these regimes were medieval and backwards. So they actually, they even dug up kind of a, a muck uh, ruins, 
uh, at some of the uh, former palaces. They added some mock medieval bastions as well. So there's, there's this very strong ideological concept uh, showing uh, how backward that system was. While the current government is uh, actually trying to restore some of the grandeur of the city uh, coming from the you know Habsburg uh, Empire, but, but also from kind of this golden period, golden period of Hungary, which was the Austro-Hungarian Empire. So they're actually rebuilding a lot of these former offices, uh, palaces, uh, and they're building there uh, here now. Uh, was actually a, a very nice home for one of the barons of Hungary, who was also prime minister of Hungary for a time. Uh, and this building also got a direct bomb hit during the Second World War, so it was completely destroyed. Uh, actually, 10 years ago, there was a, a ruin here, uh, nothing here. And um, actually, the Central Bank of Hungary rebuilt this building. They wanted to use it, but in the end, uh, they gave it to the government. And uh, when the government uh, actually gave it to a foundation, which we are part of the Botany Lajos Foundation, which is named after the first uh, prime minister of Hungary. Hmm. I, I think that when you only have 10 million Hungarians in, in the country, and a few million overseas, but it's a small group. And one of the things I hear from Hungary is that they want to keep the ethnic nature of the country because there's no other place that's Hungarian. And I think there's other small countries like that, that if they don't fight to keep their flavor, they'll be lost in the world. I mean, I think, I think that's what happens to small countries. I mean, my, in my country, Canada, the province of Ontario is larger than Hungary, both in terms of population and geography. How has the Viktor Orban administration addressed the issues that would come with dissipating, like I, I, I think reviving the history and reminding people of the history is one way, but how about the future? Um, demographically, what is happening in Hungary and how is the government trying to get more Hungarians? Yes. Well, if you want to understand the Hungarian psyche, uh, what you were saying is very important. So Hungary was always well, during its history, it sometimes was much bigger than it is today, but it always was uh, relatively small compared to the Slavic uh, countries in the neighborhood or the German countries in the neighborhood. So if you look at some of the earliest examples of Hungarian literature, you were already very afraid of getting you know, <laughs> uh, destroyed or basically uh, uh, assimilated by the Slavic or the German people of the region. So there's this constant fear of Hungarians that are unique language in the middle of Europe without any real language relatives in the region will just slowly disappear. Uh, and I think the government understood this Hungarian mentality uh, and, and that's one of the reasons why they are successful in the in elections as well. And what they have been trying to do is kind of an interesting alternative to some of the um, uh, ideologically driven uh, ideas of the of the progressive left in, in Western Europe because uh, they said no to immigration. Uh, I think in, in Western Europe there's this concept that uh, it's two things basically. One is that you cannot really do anything about the demographic situation. So uh, because of several reasons, but uh, people will not have more kids. And uh, partly because of this, but also because it's good for your economy and all the other usual uh, uh, theories, uh, immigration is, is a better way to basically increase your population and maintain your uh, society's welfare system. And I think uh, our government chose a completely different path. They said no to this, and they said that you can actually uh, help your own people to have more kids. Uh, 
Uh, because if you look at the literature, then actually a lot of, even in Western Europe, even in very uh, progressive countries like Sweden, most of them actually want to have more kids. Uh, they just, because of economic reasons, mostly, they just think that they cannot have more kids. Uh, and Fidesz, because of this, introduced several... Fidesz uh, is the governing Fidesz party. Fidesz is the government party, yes, in Hungary. Introduced several uh, policies which would try to uh, help people who are working to have more kids and kind of uh, give economic benefits or at least uh, cut back some of the disin uh, uh, some of the disincentives to not to have uh, kids. For so, give me an example of how how are they encouraging Hungarians to have more babies? There's several policies. Uh, there's uh, tax breaks. So uh, one interesting policy is that actually, if you have four kids as a woman, you will never have to pay personal income tax. Uh, but even as a man, or even if you have one kid, two kids, three kids, there's several uh, tax breaks. So, for example, I have two kids, I pay less taxes as a person who has no kids. Uh, but, uh, but I think what is really unique is what I mentioned, that uh, actually women don't have to pay personal income tax if they have four kids that's, or more. That's incredible. I'm, is it working? It seems to be working. I mean, Hungary had a very disperative uh, 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 birth rate. So we had 1.3, which was one of the lowest in uh, 1.3 fertility rate. So the average family would have, you know, maybe one kid. Yes. The, the odd one would have two. That, that's a, so that's 10 years ago, that was a starting point. Yeah. And now, even with COVID, it's 1.6, 1.7. So there is an increase, yeah. which is not, you know, uh, it's still not good. Yeah. But compared to 1.3, it's a significant growth. Yeah. And it happened, as I said, in the past five, six, seven years. Yeah. So we're hoping that in the long run, it's going to be much more successful. Mm -hmm. And as I said, some of these policies have been gradually introduced. Mm -hmm. So, for example, uh, the, the personal income tax has only been introduced a couple of years ago. Mm -hmm. So we're hoping that this will improve uh, even more. And also, it's not just the birth rate. So actually, marriage is doubled, which I think is very important, because uh, if you look at a lot of the statistics, a lot of the research, uh, I mean, babies born in, in, in normal families, marriages, are, have a much uh, better life, are more, much happier, and also have really better uh, uh, expectations in life. So I think... Uh, I so mean, how is the, has the government done anything to encourage marriages? Yes. What have they done? Uh, actually, you get, if you're married, uh, you also get a tax break for two years. Uh, it's called... Uh, uh, first marriage allowance or something like that, literally in English. Uh, and also, uh, it's easier to get some of the family support programs if you're married. Uh, if you already have kids, then it's you can get it even if you're in a civil union. Uh, but for example, if you just promise to have two, three kids to get some of these benefits, because you can do that and you have 10 years to deliver on that promise, uh, you have to be married, for example. Mm. Uh, so there are effective policies in trying to uh, encourage people to be married instead of being in civil unions. Isn't that interesting? A pro-babies approach. I'm just thinking the, the exact opposite was China's one-child yes. <laughs> policy for the longest time, which was devastating in so many ways. Uh, you, you make a good point about the economics of it, because I think that you know uh, a, a lot of women go into the workplace because they feel they need that extra dough. Yeah. And by the time they do the math of childcare, it just doesn't work. So uh, the idea of being tax-free for life is incredible. So I think money is part of it, but I think having an but also, if you don't mind me uh, yeah. chipping in here, it's it's also allowing women to stay at home with the kids for a longer period. For example, uh, well, it depends on the salary you make, but for average people, uh, for the first half year after the baby was born, you can stay at home on your 
gross, so not, not net on your gross salary. And even, even afterwards, you up to about one and a half year of the kid, you still get a pretty good salary for staying at home. And does that come from the company or from the government? Uh, both. So, so it's, it's actually a, a nice policy and it allows a lot of women to stay at home. And also they tried to introduce policies which would help women to work part-time. So four hours uh, a day, 20 hours a week, policies like that. So companies now actually encourage to do that and they get, can get tax benefits if they uh, employ women uh, part-time, you have babies. So I think it's also during coming into the economic uh, side of the whole thing, it's, it's uh, uh, allowing women to, you know, work a bit, uh, have a bit more money with having more uh, children as well. Hmm. Moving from 1.3 to 1.6 kids per family in, in five or 10 years, that is actually an enormous change. It's not yet, you know, 2.1 or whatever for replacing people, but yeah. that's a huge change. I, and I imagine it takes years for these things to kick in. But I don't think it's just economics. I think there has to be a, a feeling of meaning and purpose. And that's why I was, when we were, when we were coming in here to see the refurbishment, and it's not just of the buildings. Um, it's the meaning and the history of the buildings and the identity. And, and if Hungarians can feel that they're part of a national project, and I, I sense this in some other countries too. Um, for example, Israel, which has a, a high uh, birth rate. I think that country, even though it's under tremendous stress, it has a mission and an identity and a sort of team spirit. Everyone's in it together. They join the army together. And I feel like the policies that you talked about, you know, strengthening the family, reviving the history, controlling immigration, being wary of outside powers, I feel like that might give people an identity that gives them a confidence. I, I think a, a culture that's lost its confidence has lost its will to go on. I see that in the West, a huge identity crisis, even on a personal level. Kids not even knowing who they are, so they choose to be transgender for any flavor, they, for some meaning, or there's a narcissism there, but they, they don't have other things to believe in. Is that part of it? Do Hungarians feel part of a larger project? Are they hopeful and confident? Well, uh, Hungarians are usually a kind of uh, pessimistic people because of our history. So uh, if you would ask an average Hungarian, they like to complain. Uh, but uh, I do think that they have a, a sense of purpose, yes. Uh, and also believe that things are going uh, a bit better than they did uh, 10, 20 years ago. Uh, I mean, I myself, I, I remember Hungary 15 years ago under a socialist government. It was pretty bleak. So if you would look at Budapest during that time, uh, looked at the buildings, at the public transport, it was it was far worse than it is now. So uh, this, this uh, kind of feeling that uh, a lot of our history is being restored, uh, that there's a lot of development coming into a country, I think that gives us a, a new sense of pride. Uh, but also what you said, I think it's interesting and, and very important to have a focus on, on uh, education. So here uh, we have kind of national curriculums, uh, which uh, the government also has a say in. 
are and let's focus on history to understand it's it's not you know uh, propaganda so we do understand the importance of a critical thinking towards your history but it's also not what is happening in in some places in america where basically you're saying that all your history was terrible yeah. so we still have this sense that uh, hungary was always a, a freedom-loving country we had we're very famous about our, our you know, revolutions and freedom fights against the uh, russians against the habsburgs uh, fighting against the turks and i think most hungarians feel this and uh, and actually some of the how should i say hostility we feel towards the european union now that is a bit about this so we don't like foreign powers uh, to tell us how to do things so mm. uh, that resonates very badly with the hungarians and again i think that's partly uh, a reason for the success of warban because he understands that he understands that hungarians don't like uh, the eu uh, telling us how to run things because I mean, we had the Soviets, we had the Habsburgs, uh, we are kind of fed up with that. Mm -hmm. uh, and we're very happy that we are independent now and we would like to, you know, chart our own independent course. Mm -hmm. hmm. uh, just quickly on, on the transgender thing, and I know that might sound like a very strange question to ask, but I was in London recently and I didn't see very many British flags, the Union Jack. I, I saw a few of them, but I saw hundreds of pride flags and the new transgender flag and I, I've never seen so many flags in my life. I, I mean, other than during the coronation when they had uh, the Union Jack, but it's like a coronation every day. On, on, but in the days I've been in Budapest, I haven't seen any of that and in flags and even in people, I haven't seen that sort of uh, they, them, gender activism in the West. I just haven't seen any of it. Uh, and I understand Budapest would be the, the most liberal city yeah. in the country. Um, has that just not come here yet? Are your intellectual elites not part of that project? Has there been some official pu pushback in some way? I just, you know, I mean, I live in Toronto, which is a very transgender-oriented city, too. And to come here and to see men who are masculine and women who are feminine, it's sort of a shocking change from where I'm from. Um, I don't know if this is an even, even a thing people talk about here. What, is it? Uh, sadly, it is. So it's affecting us as well. It's, it's much less uh, profound than it is in, in the West. I've been to London three weeks ago and uh, I had the same experience you had. I was really surprised. But although it was Pride Month, so I guess uh, that perhaps in an average month you wouldn't have that, but who knows. Uh, and I was in New York, which was uh, pretty much the same uh, last week, actually. So uh, we do have it. Uh, I mean, we have Netflix, we have HBO and all these are you know, spreading it. Uh, but there has been pushback from the government. One very important policy which we introduced and has been fighting against the European Union because they don't like it and it made us fairly infamous is the child protection law, uh, which basically bans sexual propaganda uh, in kindergartens and, and most of primary school. Uh, and while they said this is anti-trans, anti-homosexual, uh, uh, I mean, it does ban uh, activism in, in uh, you know, homosexual, transgender activism, but it, it would ban, you know, heterosexual activism if you would have that as well. So we think that sexuality is not for kindergarten kids or, you know, small primary children. So over, let's say, 13 years old, of course, you have to have sexual education classes. That's fine. But, uh, you know, if you're six year old or eight year old, I don't think you need that. So there's been pushback. Uh, and actually, because of this, some of the um, 
the, the children books which uh, show transgenderism, homosexuality, uh, they now have to put those books at the adult section and there has been some uproar about that. Uh, but there has been kind of a pushback and also we've been trying to um, kind of, well, ban is perhaps a strong word, but now legally it's very difficult to change your gender in Hungary. Uh, even if you would do it, uh, my knowledge is, uh, I'm not sure now how that's going on with the European Union because they tried to find us about that, but I think it's still in effect. So even if you would change your gender, we have, you know, identity cards, and it will still show your original gender assigned in birth. So you cannot really uh, uh, be a proper transsexual in this sense in Hungary currently, because uh, your ID card will still show your assigned gender from birth. So there has been actually significant uh, pushback from the government, especially on the trans issue, uh, less on the on the homosexual issue. Uh, but there has been, and actually, uh, you, I mean, I, I like what you said, but uh, if you would arrived a bit earlier, uh, Saturday we had the gay pride, uh, uh, <laughs> uh, well, protest, or I'm not sure how to call it, but the kind of the, the festival in Budapest. So uh, on, on Saturday we would have seen a lot of homosexuals and transsexuals, uh, because they, each year you have that and it's not banned by the government. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, we see it as you know a, a normal protest, mm -hmm. uh, although I think there's sometimes a bit uh, excessive uh, <laughs> sexual content on these parades, but I mean, <laughs> what can you do? Uh, and, so and it's not, and I'm, I'm not necessarily criticizing a particular orientation, I'm just saying that the ideological, total institutional uh, capture by a political movement aimed at transitioning kids, I think that's very different from a regular yes. pride parade. That, that's how it, that I, think, I think in the West, you're starting to see people pulling back from the LGBT because of this new focus on kids and focus yeah. on changing your gender, including through medication and through surgery. I, I, I just think that there's a, there's a qualitative difference between adult gay pride parade and, and the, yeah, I just think that's. A well, huge I think that's difference. why the government introduced this child protection law because we kind of tried to draw a line, and I think that's. Uh, and I'm hoping that that is going to be the downfall of these movements because I think if you look at, for example, how homosexuality has become accepted in the past 60 years, uh, it was a quite different process than what how the trans movement is acting now. So uh, they never went after the kids. Uh, they never said that if you don't want to have sex with a homosexual, you're homophobic. So they kind of uh, left out, I think, the private. Mm -hmm. uh, we have this very proud tradition, I think, in the West that you separate the public and the private. And you know, in your private sphere, as long as it's between two consenting adults, we don't care what you do, really. But I think the trans movement is now actually going to the bedroom. Yeah. So they're actually looking at your own sexual preferences. They're looking at your kids, uh, which, I mean, the communists try to do that, and the Nazis try to do that. But luckily, they, they try to break the kids away from the family. Yes. Did, in, in Hungary during um, the Soviet times, did they have a version of the young pioneers? Yeah, of course. Where they turn kids against their families? They were trying to do that, and uh, it was more before the 56th revolution. I mean, we had a very hard dictatorship, and afterwards, of course, there was uh, I mean, a blowback after the revolution itself, but the regime became a bit softer. Uh, so I think uh, one of the deals, actually, the, the leader made during that time was, uh, we will leave out the communist things from your private life. So even the communists, after I realized that they cannot go after your private life because people will just rebel. Mm. Uh, but they did try to do that, and it was very, very hardcore. So uh, especially in the Soviet 
Soviet Union, if you look at it, you had kind of movements about trying to turn the kids against parents. Yeah. You know, if your parents said something reactionary or, mm -hmm. you know, uh, religious, then you should report it. So you had that. But even I think uh, in, in, in the communist societies, after a while, they realized that, I mean, people will not, I mean, yeah. uh, it just, it's just, it's just. I think in our Western mind, it's just, uh, it's just so deeply in in uh, the separation of of, of uh, private and public, uh, and I'm hoping that this will be the downfall of this because I think it's very dangerous when you go into the private mm -hmm. and try to tell people what to do privately. Uh, uh, I was a libertarian for a time, so especially because of that. But even as a as a conservative, and and uh, I, I think that's very dangerous. So please leave my private life and my mm -hmm. kids out of this. Right. <laughs> 56 uprising was remarkable. I mean, it was just barely a decade after the end of the Second World War. It was really the first major rebellion against Soviet domination. In the end, it, it didn't succeed. A great number of Hungarians came to the West, including to, to Canada. Um, and what you're saying is that that at least caused the communists to temper themselves somewhat, as opposed to maybe Romania, where I think they were very harsh. Um, it's been 70 years since that. Is that still an important part of the Hungarian political psychology? Is standing up at long long? That was sort of the Tiananmen Square moment yeah. of Hungary. Do, is that part of the discourse today? Um, are there communist parties running in elections today? Like, it, or has, have they been denormalized? Is it socially acceptable to be a communist in Hungary in 2023? It's much less acceptable than I think in the West. So I think most people will not say that they're a communist. There is a communist party and they run on the election, but they usually get 1% or even less. Mm -hmm. uh, and even the, the former communist uh, you know, party members, they actually uh, evolved into the today. I mean, today we have a socialist party and that is kind of the, the successor of the communist party, but also the, the socialist party kind of uh, uh, break down after the 2010 election. So there's now several parties which were actually part of the Socialist Party and some of them have uh, uh, still former communists in their leadership. Uh, so, but they would never say they're communists. Actually, most of the communists uh, are now very pro-European, which is funny and, and strange, and also very neoliberal in their economics. Again, very strange. Uh -huh. uh, but and they then, still have that dream of a global government. Yes, they? but it's now not the Soviet Union and not the Communist the International. Union, yeah. Now it's the European Union and kind of the progressive international, which is, I think, quite strange and hmm. perhaps telling. Uh, but we never say they're communist. Uh, while when I was, for example, studying in Edinburgh, I would say 20, 30% of the students are very proudly communist, which mm. is a Hungarian never understood, yeah. because uh, here it will be very negative. So 56 is still very important. Most people remember it. And especially because, you know, under communism, that was taboo. So uh, before, uh, you mentioned that we, we talked before about the uh, prime minister's uh, Viktor Orban's speech uh, uh, during the fall of communism. He was one of the first speeches where he, he referenced 56 and also said, you know, Russians go home. Uh, but before that, for, you know, more than 30 years, uh, you couldn't talk about the revolution. It was, or if you, if you talked about it, it was this reactionary, uh, you know, not a proper uh, revolution, but something which was a fascist coup. Uh, if you talked about it in other, other terms, you could get into jail or get fined. So I think uh, because it was a taboo for so long, it's, it's still actually much more powerful than it would be if it wouldn't have been a taboo for 30 years under communism. So you, you made reference to that. Let's let's show a clip of that because if I understand it correctly, this was the moment, the speech, 
that made Viktor Orban a political figure. If I understand, he was a young, almost student leader. Yes. And this was when the Berlin Wall was falling, when the Soviet Empire was crumbling, but they were still running things here in Hungary. And there's still there were Russian troops in Hungary. So set up this clip a little bit, and we'll play a little bit just to show our viewers when Viktor Orban became a political figure. Give us a one-minute intro to the clip. Well, I think it was, uh, it basically shocked people that somebody would say these words, especially Russians go home, because as I said, there was still a big Russian force in Hungary. What was the year of this? This is 89. Yeah, so so, but yeah. but the first half of that '89, so the the Berlin Wall was still it in, was still intact. there. Wow! So yes. this was before the end was. Uh... Yes, so it, it was still not clear what will happen, and if you look at actually how how the kind of the the deals between the opposition and the government party, nobody knew the real you know power structure. So uh, most of the opposition leaders thought that it will still take years, perhaps a decade, before there's going to be a full transition, and then you have this young guy saying Russians go home. And that really shocked people, and, and it really made him a, a... He could have been disappeared for that. Yes. He could uh, have been, he could have, under the law, he could have been arrested yeah. as a counter-revolutionary. Yeah, he presume. could have been beaten by the police, detained, uh, perhaps even thrown into jail. What was the reaction of others? So th this was at an event, they were, uh, th the regime was trying to increase its Hungarian bona fides by reburying re a, a, a Hungarian hero. They were trying, they were trying to, uh, say, no, we're actually with you, the people. Is that what it was? Yes, they were trying to kind of uh, uh, show 56 in a, in a different light mm -hmm. and kind of acknowledge some of the past, of, uh, some of the sins of the past. Huh. Uh, but I mean, there was, there was a huge support towards Orban and towards, I mean, I think most of the communist leaders realized that there's this sentiment in the Hungarian population that we have to chart our own way and the Russians really have to go home. Wow. Uh, and that's why there was no real backlash in the end, because they realized that the, that the people might not be with them. Here, let's watch a little bit of that clip. A magyar nemzetnek egyszer nyílt alkalma, csak egyszer volt elegendő ereje és bátorsága ahhoz, hogy megkísérelje elérni a már 1848-ban kitűzött céljait, a nemzeti függetlenséget és a politikai szabadságot. Céljaink máig nem változtak. Ma sem engedünk 48-ból, így nem engedhetünk 56-ból sem. Azok a fiatalok, akik ma az európai polgári demokrácia megteremtéseért küzdenek Magyarországon, két okból hajtanak fejet a kommunista nagyimre és társai koporsói előtt. Mi azokat az államférfiakat tiszteljük bennük, akik azonosultak a magyar társadalom akaratával, akik, hogy ezt megtehessék, képesek voltak leszámolni szent kommunista tabuikkal, azaz az orosz birodalom feltétlen szolgálatával, és a párt diktatúrájával. Ők azok az államférfiak számunkra, akik az akasztófa árnyékában sem vállalták, hogy a társadalmat megtizedelő gyilkosokkal egy sorba álljanak, akik életük árán sem tagadták meg azt a nemzetet, amely elfogadta őket, és bizalmát beléjük helyezte. Mi az ő sorsukból tanultuk meg, hogy a demokrácia és a kommunizmus összeegyeztethetetlen. Jól tudjuk, a forradalom és a megtorlások áldozatainak többsége korunkbeli magunkfajta fiatal volt. 
de nem pusztán ezért érezzük magunkénak a hatodik koporsót. Mind a mai napig 1956 volt nemzetünk utolsó esélye, hogy a nyugati fejlődés útjára lépve gazdasági jólétet teremtsen. A ma válunkra nehezedő csőtt meg egyenes következménye annak, hogy vérbefolytották forradalmunkat és visszakényszerítettek bennünket abba az ázsiai zsákutcába, amelyből most újra megpróbálunk kiutat találni. Valójában akkor, 1956-ban vette el tőlünk mai fiataloktól jövőnket a Magyar Szocialista Munkáspárt. Ezért a hatodik koporsóban... Ezért, ezért a hatodik koporsóban nem csupán egy legyőkolt fiatal, hanem a mi elkövetkezendő húsz, vagy ki tudja hány évünk is ott fekszik. Barátaim, mi fiatalok sok mindent nem értünk, ami talán természetes az idősebb generációk számára. Mi értetlenül állunk azelőtt, hogy a forradalmat és annak miniszterelnökét nemrég még kórusban gyalázók ma váratlanul ráébrednek, hogy ők Nagy Imre reformpolitikájának folytatói. Azt sem értjük, azt sem értjük, hogy azok a párt és állami vezetők, akik elrendelték, hogy bennünket a forradalmat meghamisító tankönyvekből oktassanak, ma szinte tülekednek, hogy mint egy szerencsehozó talizmánként megérinthessék ezeket a koporsókat. Mi úgy véljük, nem tartozunk hálával azért, hogy 31 év után eltemethetjük halottainkat. Nem jár senkinek köszönet azért, mert ma már működhetnek politikai szervezeteink. A magyar politikai vezetésnek nem érdeme, hogy a demokráciát és szabad választásokat követelőkkel szemben, bár fegyvere is újjánál fogva ezt megtehetné, nem lép fel Lípengéhez, Polpotéhoz, Jaruzelszkéhoz, vagy éppen Rákoséhoz hasonló módszerekkel. Polgártársak, ma 33 évvel a magyar forradalom, és 31 évvel az utolsó felelős magyar miniszterelnök kivégzése után esélyünk van arra, hogy békés úton érjük el mindazt, amit az 56-os forradalmárok véres harcokban, ha csak néhány napra is, de megszereztek a nemzet számára. Ha hiszünk a magunk erejében képesek vagyunk végezetni a kommunista diktatúrának, ha elég eltökéltek vagyunk, rátoríthatjuk az uralkodó pártot, hogy alávesse magát a szabad választásoknak, ha nem tévesztjük szem elől 56 eszméit, olyan kormányt választhatunk magunknak, amely azonnali tárgyalásokat kezd az orosz csapatok kivonásának haladéktalan megkezdéséről. Ha van bennünk elég mert, ha van bennünk elég mert, hogy mindezt akarjuk, akkor, de csak akkor beteljesíthetjük forradalmunk akaratát. Senki sem hiheti, hogy a pártállam magától fog megváltozni. Emlékezzetek, 1956. október 6-án Rajk László temetésének napján a párt napilapja a Szabad Nép öles betűkkel hirdette címlapján. Soha többé. Csak három hét telt el, 
és a kommunista párt AVH legényeivel békés, fegyvertelen tüntetők közé lövetett. Két év sem telt el a soha többé óta, és az MSZNP rajkéhoz hasonló koncepciós perekben ítélte halára ártatlanok százait, közöttük saját elszásait. Ezért nem érhetjük be a kommunista politikusok semmire sem kötelező ígéreteivel. Nekünk azt kell elérnünk, hogy az uralkodó párt, ha akar, se tudjon erőszakot alkalmazni ellenünk. Nincs más mód... Nincs más mód, hogy elkerüljük az újabb koporsókat, a maihoz hasonló megkésett temetéseket. Nagy Imre, Gimes Miklós, Losonci Géza, Maléter Pál, Szilágyi József és a néptelen szádak a magyar függetlenségért és szabadságért áldozták életüket. A magyar fiatalok, akik előtt ezek az eszmék még ma is férthetetlenek, meghajtják fejüket emléketek előtt. Nyugodjatok békében! That took courage. I mean, it's one thing to be a secret rebel, writing Sam is dead and circulating it, but to be in the center of political life and saying, Russian, go home, when they were there in their tanks. That, that really is courage. And I think of another Hungarian who is politically powerful, and I think of George Soros. And everything you've described to me today tells me why George Soros hates Viktor Orban. Orban is for limited, regulated immigration, not mass immigration. He's for an ethnic national identity. He's not a globalist like Soros. Um, he's opposed to cultural Marxism in the form of transgenderism. He is skeptical of global governments like the European Union. Of course, Soros hates him. And But that final comparison is that when it came to resisting tyranny, Orban stood up in a country where there were still Soviet tanks and said, Russians go home, whereas Soros, and he was only a teenager at the time, but he secretly collaborated, like he, he went around with the Nazis. And I'm not, I'm not blaming a teenager for pretending he was a Gentile and hanging out with a Nazi officer who was expropriating. I'm just saying there were two paths. One was a path of cowardice and opportunity that George Soros took, and the other was a path of, I'm going to speak truth to power that Viktor Orban took. It is no surprise to me that Soros hates Orban so viscerally. How did Orban win that battle? Because Hungary was sort of Soros's home turf. He's Hungarian. Um, he's got so much money, it can really sway things here in Hungary. How on earth did Viktor Orban and his Fidesz party possibly beat George Soros and his billions? How did that happen? Well, it was a long process, but also uh, it's funny what you said because, uh, I mean, in the 80s, Soros played a much more positive role in Hungary, at least we still think that. So he did support some of the opposition movement. Orban actually attended uh, Oxford on a, on a, on a scholarship from, really? uh, from Soros. So a lot of the opposition leaders got fellowships from him. So I didn't know this story about uh, him, him collaborating. Uh, he, I mean, he was a, he was a teenager, mm -hmm. but he... Uh, I mean, here, let's play a clip from 60 Minutes. He, on his bicycle, he, he delivered notices to the Jews to, to oh. report to the train stations. And then his father basically seconded him. He pretended he was a nephew or something of a Nazi officer who was expropriating Jewish property. His father told him to do that to survive. 
And I'm not blaming a teenager for doing what his dad well, surviving, said. surviving, yeah. Oh. Yeah, here, let's, I want to show our viewers who may not have seen this. Here's the clip of when Steve Croft of 60 Minutes asked Soros about his role during the Nazi occupation. Take a quick look. You're a Hungarian Jew who escaped the Holocaust mm -hmm. by posing as a, a Christian. Right. And you watched lots of people get shipped off to the death camps. Right. I was 14 years old. And I would say that that's when my character was made. My understanding is, is that you went out with this protector of yours who swore that you were uh, his adopted godson. Yes, yes. Went out, in fact, and helped in the confiscation of property from the Jews. That's right. Yes. I mean, that's, that sounds uh, like an experience that would send lots of people to the psychiatric couch for many, many years. Was it difficult? Uh, not, not, not at all. Not at all. It, uh, maybe as a child, you don't you don't see the connection, uh, but it was it created no no problem at all. No feeling of guilt. No, that if I weren't there, of course I wasn't doing it, but somebody else would would, would, would be taking it away anyhow. In other words, the, whether I was there or not, I was only a spectator. The property was being taken away. So I had no role in taking away that property. So I had no sense of guilt. Are you religious? No. Do you believe in God? No. I don't feel guilty because I'm engaged in an amoral activity which is not meant to have anything to do with guilt. I just, thanks. I just wanted to play that clip again to remind people. Um, so you're saying Soros was actually helping the good guys in the 80s. That's interesting to hear. Yeah, but we have this feeling that he played a more, uh, how should I say, beneficial role, uh, which later turned to what you're saying. To I think there was this difference. Uh, so I think Soros feels personally betrayed a bit by Orban because he saw him as a protege, but Orban said no to some of these progressive policies. So when it turned to, uh, you know, uh, being in government uh, and adapting some of the policies Soros would have liked, uh, Orban definitely charted a different path. Uh, so I think it's a very complex relation they have. But, you know, the first Orban government, uh, which was uh, a coalition government uh, in power from uh, nine, uh, 1989 to 2002, so four years, uh, and they lost the 2002 elections. It was a very close election. Uh, but in the end, they lost. And I think that was, that was crucial uh, to understand how Fidesz thinks now, because they started, they realized that without proper media support, uh, without uh, proper uh, support in the countryside and, you know, people, party organizations in the countryside, they will not be able to win elections. Uh, and they started to build this up. They started their media organizations. Uh, they started uh, uh, kind of a, a, a building of, of local offices in the countryside. And, of course, uh, their economic crisis and also the kind of the gross mismanagement of the Socialist Party, which they were doing in the 2000s, helped because uh, Fidesz managed to get a two-thirds uh, uh, majority uh, in, the, in the parliament in 2010, uh, which was a, a, a very uh, extraordinary support from the people. But since then, they have been managed to uh, reproduce that uh, in each of the elections, uh, and it shows people like what he's doing. Uh, but especially after 2010, they really focused 
on even more support of uh, kind of conservative civil society, even more support of, of uh, conservative media. Uh, so they really built up kind of a, an opposition or kind of a counterbalance to some of these progressive policies. So unlike uh, in America, uh, or I guess it's the same in Canada, uh, it's not like 90% of the media is, is globalist progressive. Here it's 60, 40, 50, 50, I'm not sure about really? the goal. Yeah, so we have actually a significant uh, counterbalance to some of the, the progressive medias, uh, and that's why they hate him. So if you would look at some of the New York Times or other uh, narratives about Hungary, they would say that Hungary, uh, you know, it's, they would say it's, it's actually uh, the reverse. So Orban is, has all the media and it's controlling everything, which is not true. Uh, I mean, actually, that's true in America or Canada, where the progressives are ruling all the media and there's hardly any outside voice. Here it's basically, uh, I would say, almost 50-50. But they hate that because, uh, you know, you know there's, there's people can see the other narratives uh, quite easily. So I think, uh, I mean, they needed this eight years in opposition to kind of build themselves up. They needed some luck with uh, the Socialist Party being so terrible. Uh, but afterwards, after they, they came into power and, uh, and a second time in 2010, they really cleverly uh, built on this support and kind of um, organized uh, effective civil society and, uh, and media opposition counterbalance to some of these policies. Uh, and that's why you have a flourishing think tank scene in Hungary. Uh, that's why you have flourishing uh, right-wing media in Hungary now. Hmm. And I heard that the U.S. just approved $25 million to set up independent media in Hungary, which, I mean, it's pretty obvious what that means. That means anti-Orban media. I'm, I was shocked to hear this. I just heard it, and I haven't had a chance to delve into it. Did that happen? And is that Joe Biden's administration really saying, we're going to dig up your backyard? Is I mean, it's shocking to me. They would never do that in, say, Ukraine. They would never do that in... Uh, or in Germany or, yeah, or the UK. Yeah, it's, or... It's, 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 it's astounding to me. Did that happen? And, Sadly, and what, it did. And what's the reaction? Uh, I mean, imagine if the reverse was true. Imagine if Orban sent $25 million, But actually, for a country of 10 million people, $25 million is an astonishing amount. You would have to be 30 times more money to have the same impact in the United States, because the United States is 30 times bigger. But imagine, well, if, let's say, Russia would do that with any country, yeah. or Iran, or China. I mean, that would be huge uproar. Well, I mean, just uh, the math on that, that would be like almost a billion dollars in America to have anti-Biden media. That would, that would be a diplomatic incident. Yeah. What is the reaction here? Well, it's, it's uh, we feel that uh, a huge betrayal. I mean, this is an ally. We are a NATO, NATO country, uh, America should be our friend. And uh, it's just, you know, doing something like that is a huge betrayal. And, and, and I think it's a terrible move. But to make uh, matters even worse, uh, it's uh, well, actually the, the, we had a kind of a coalition of opposition parties running against Fidesz. And the, the leader of that is quite outspoken. Uh, he's a bit like Trump in this sense that he will say things which a lot of people will not, but he's, he's uh, not in, in a good way. Uh, and actually he went into the, one of the radios and he acknowledged that they got uh, about uh, $10 million uh, from America for the election. So he's the CIA man. He's the CIA. Yeah, but I mean, yeah. imagine, I mean, if, if this would happen in America, that's, that, that Hungary would be giving uh, yeah. millions of dollars uh, to, to parties. And I mean, he would never, never, I mean. And how did Hungarians react? Like that, that's, that's, 
Like that is not a well. They they feel that this person is is basically a spy or is is betraying Hungary and should be in jail. And was this before the last election that this came out? No, it was is after the election. So uh -huh. uh, and actually, there's there's some uh, talk about perhaps prosecuting this person because this technically is illegal. Uh, and also, the, it now turns out that the opposition mayor in 2019 might have got again uh, a bit more than a million dollars from American donors for his. Uh, mayoral campaign. It's one thing to get money from American donors, and that may be illegal, and, and you got to follow the law. But when the U.S. government itself is funding people to take down, no, sorry, so that was uh, technically it was donors, so we don't know who gave oh, okay. the money. Well, but still. it's but it's it's kind of uh, it seems that it was only one or two people, which again is quite well. I think we suspicious. can guess who the we can guess uh, who the one or two <laughs> people is that's giving millions of dollars to uh, in Hungary. Well, that. How is the relationship between uh, Hungary and America, UK, Canada is not really relevant, I don't think here, even though I wish it were. Hungary's been a NATO ally for almost 25 years. Hungary ha has a free market, or at least close to a free market. It feels Western, walking around the city, I feel more like Europe than Asia or Central Asia. Um, it feels modern, not, not ultra-modern, but modern. Um, is Orban facing the West or the East more, and is he being pushed away by the West? Well, I think he's trying. I mean, we are a Western country, and I think most Hungarians feel that but with proud roots from the East. So uh, according to our history, Hungarians came from somewhere from Siberia or the steppes, uh, and, and a, thousand, a bit more than a thousand years ago, we settled in the Carpathian Basin and, and built a, a, a state, and St. Stephen embraced Christianity, and since a thousand years, been being this proud Christian Western power. Uh, sometimes sadly cut off from uh, Western development by the Ottomans, by the Soviets, but still there's this sense that we're a Western country. But besides that, I think Orban has been trying, uh, as, as, as kind of a uh, policy as a small state, to have fairly good relations with other powers in the world. And of course, the most infamous was Russia and, and China. Uh, but that's not just these countries. I mean, these got a lot of attention from Western media. But actually, South Korea was one of the biggest investors for years in Hungary. So it was kind of a general global opening that, of course, we are EU members, we are NATO members, we are part of an alliance, but we should, you know, at least economically have fairly good relations with East Asia, with Africa, with uh, Arabic countries and others. Uh, so there is generally this, this concept that we should have good relations with them. But of course, as I said, there's this strong sense that we're a NATO member and we should, you know, we, are, we actually we will uh, uh, reach the 2% GDP, uh, uh, you know, uh, for military uh, next year. So we're trying to be good NATO. Canada's only 1.38, <laughs> so you're far ahead of Yeah, us. but also the Ukrainian war was kind of a wake-up call. So, well, and uh, let me ask but, you. But, but going back to what you originally asked, there, we, we do feel that, I mean, I, I'm a very much a transatlantist, and I think I think tank is that. But mm. it is increasingly being difficult to be that here because of all the the bad things we're getting from the current of American government, and Obama wasn't that much better. So mm -hmm. what we feel from America is that they only care about uh, transgender rights, social issues. Uh, now, of course, there's a good excuse with the war that we're not doing enough in, in Ukraine. How about global uh, warming? Is that a big deal here in Hungary? In Canada, that's all you hear about. In the UK, too, net zero, carbon capture, green energy. Is any of that 
it's not as not as bad as it's there. And actually, the government here tried to embrace some parts of it as a conservative government. So they do say that as conservatives and Christians, we do have a responsibility towards the environment. So they did try to uh, do some, which I think was actually okay. So I think uh, as a conservative, you know, being against... Uh, do they have a carbon tax? Are they saying outlaw no, fossil fuels? No, 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 no. We will never do that. It's, the net it's, zero? Do no, the, talk the, about the craziness that? is not happening. It's, mm -hmm. it's more like we have to protect some of the environment. Well, I mean, no one would disagree uh, and, with and, that. And, you know, we, we, besides fossil fuels, we are happy to support solar panels and some of the, you know, alternative energy sources. Uh, so there is some form of that that we should embrace some parts of it, uh, but not go full crazy on the net zero things and, and others. So, uh, and I think it's been fairly, I mean, of course you have some young people who are protesting sometimes about it, but it's usually like a hundred people or something. Mm -hmm. So it is happening and a lot of young people uh, kind of uh, sympathize with that, but it's, it's for the time being hasn't been as, it's a bit like the transsexual movement that you have already kind of elements of it, mm -hmm. but actually I think that was much more, uh, much stronger than, than the climate change movement here. I interrupted you, you said said that there's this bundle of ideas from the West, transgenderism, open borders, etc., and that's making it difficult for Hungary to have a warm transatlantic friendship. Um, how has the Russian interdiction, the invasion of Ukraine changed things? Because, of course, Hungary is a NATO ally, but I see in English on Twitter, Viktor Orban tweeting calls for peace, which I mean, who wouldn't be for peace? Well, I, I see a lot of people in the West saying, this is outrageous. If you're for peace, you're for Putin. Yeah. So what, where is Hungary on the war in Ukraine? On the side of peace. And uh, it hasn't been very popular, uh, not even in the region, sadly. So has Ukraine, uh, sorry, has Hungary given any weapons or training to Ukraine or any money? Money, yes, and a lot of, lot of support. Uh, According to my knowledge, not actual weapons. He might have sent some ammunition, but I'm not 100% sure of this. Sent money, but money uh, and and a lot of you know humanitarian uh, support. So, are there any uh, refugees from Ukraine who have come to Hungary? Yes. They mostly use Hungary as a transit country, so yeah. most of them actually just go, but there are some of them here. And when they were coming, we gave them all the support, so we set up all the centers. We really welcomed them in very warm uh, uh, minds and, and hearts. And, uh, and actually, they were grateful for that. So sometimes they would acknowledge that, that how the Hungarians were very gracious, accepting all the migrants, helping them, and also sending these things. But of course, uh, they always say that they're not sending any weapons, and they're not uh, uh, giving enough support but uh, but as I said that's not true I mean I would say that we're doing 80 90 percent the same Poland is doing we're just not sending actual weapons right. uh, and um, I mean honestly we didn't don't really have anything to send because we're actually now uh, as I said we are reaching the two percent GDP uh, criteria we are reshuffling our military so the socialist government basically destroyed our military uh, they sent some of our last tanks to Iraq during the uh, the, the training of the Iraqi army after the uh, you know, the fall of Saddam Hussein so we don't really have that much uh, equipment so we got rid of the communists but we are still getting the new uh, American and German equipment to kind of right. reorganize and have a modern army and not the, the former Soviet army. So we don't really, we wouldn't really have anything to send even if we wanted to. But uh, I think there's this idea that we should try to somehow, you know, 
uh, make these two uh, uh, countries sit down and uh, you know achieve some form of peace because it's it's uh, for Hungary because it's a neighboring country it's very bad economically uh, I mean actually ethnic Hungarians are living in Ukraine who are fighting in the war on the side of Ukraine who are dying. So actually, Hungarians are dying in this conflict, mm -hmm. which a lot of people don't know. Mm -hmm. So we really have our you know, skin mm -hmm. in the game. And uh, that's why we would like to have a, a peaceful resolution to this as soon as possible. Other than calling for peace, has Ukraine been involved in any attempts to have a peace talks? I know that there were some meetings that Israel Turkey, was involved yeah. in, and Turkey. Is, is Hungary involved with that, or is it just not really in the, in the action on that? We try to do our best, and we have very good relations with both Turkey and Israel, actually, mm -hmm. as, as a country. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, I don't know about how these are going, and, and my understanding is that, I mean, uh, neither the Ukrainians nor the Russians are very uh, cooperative yeah. in these uh, talks. Well, things are pretty dire. Well, uh, listen, you've been very generous with your time. I, I guess I have one last question for you. I think that the story of Hungary, uh, there, there's, there's a lot of stories about it, and there's a lot of great men. We're in a room with an extraordinary-looking gentleman on the wall. Uh, I mean, this, this that's, country... That's Lajos Botanin, our first prime minister. He was actually martyred by the Habsburgs, so they, they shot him after the revolution we had uh, against the Habsburgs. And what year was that in? That was... Uh, well, I'm not sure when they executed thing. I think it's uh, 1849, but the revolution was 1848-49. I mean, this, uh, is, this place is rich in history. We didn't even talk about the... The, the, the Turkish invasions and the battle. I mean, there, there's so much here. This is a country of momentous people, uh, indispensable men, you could say. And that's my last question for you. As an outsider, and I, and I, I acknowledge that my knowledge is pretty shallow, it seems to me a lot of things hang on Viktor Orban himself. From that stirring speech he gave almost 40 years ago, to his uh, leadership of the party, to the building of civil society, uh, the NGOs, the think tanks, the media, the organization. But he's not going to live forever. He might lose an election one day. Um, what would Hungary look like when Orban is gone, whether that's in four years, eight years, or tomorrow? Is there a, gr a, a group of people who could fill that leadership void, or would things fall to a globalist socialist who would undo the last dozen years? Because you can smash things pretty quickly. And I feel like Hungary has been rebuilt not just from the Soviet occupation, but from the socialist interregnum. And I like how it looks and how it feels, but is it dependent on that one man? Well, that's a difficult question. Uh, I'm hope, hopeful at one hand because I think we did manage to build a quite strong uh, conservative civil society and, and think tanks, which I think most of them would actually survive a government change and could be active uh, uh, under a socialist government, let's say. Uh, I currently don't see a person who could feel uh, Orban's shoes. Uh, we have, you know, good politicians, but I mean, as a statesman-like person like Orban, I just don't see a person like that 
currently, which doesn't mean they, there is not a person like that. I'm hoping that somebody will turn up or, or is already there, just we don't see that person as mm -hmm. much. Uh, we would certainly be in a, in a much more difficult situation because, as I said, I mean, the first uh, World Bank governments, the coalition government, are conservative movement was much more fragmented before Orban came in and you needed this powerful personality to kind of bring together everyone from the Christian Democrats to the liberal conservative to the national conservatives. Uh, so it will be difficult but, uh, but I, I see this uh, glimmer of hope that uh, we did manage to build this very powerful uh, civil society. Uh, and, you know, it took 30 years. I mean, because at the fall of communism, there was no civil society. I mean, there were some, you know, former communist things, but certainly no conservative or right-wing uh, civil society. So it's, I think, a huge accomplishment. Uh, but on the other hand, if you look at countries like Ireland, which, you know, 30 years ago was very conservative, and now it's quite opposite. I mean, countries can change yeah. very rapidly. So because of that, I'm also a bit fearful of what will happen if uh, we, we will not have Orban, or we will have even four or you know eight years of, of progressive governments. Because uh, I mean, they can change public uh, thinking and, and 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 things quite rapidly. So uh, so yeah, I'm kind of mixed in this uh, regard. Well, listen, I wish you good luck, and I get the feeling that the Danube Institute is an important part of of keeping Hungary on the right path. Great to spend some time with you. Well, thank, thank you very much. It's a pleasure. Right on. Well, there you have it, a feature interview with Istvan Kiss, the executive director of the Danube Institute. For all of our special reports during our visit to Hungary, go to thetruthabouthungary.com. And if you like our work, feel free to chip in. Of course, we take no government money from any government, and we rely on you, our viewers. So if you feel compelled to support our citizen journalism, you can do that right there on the same webpage, thetruthabouthungary.com. Well, what do you think of that? Send me an email to Ezra at rebelnews.com. And if you want more, go to thetruthabouthungary.com. Our trip is going to take a turn for the interesting. Tomorrow, we're actually going to Romania, an ethnic Hungarian region called Transylvania. And we'll have more reports from there. We'll try and have a one-on-one -on -one with the Prime Minister, Viktor Orban. Until next time, on behalf of all of us at Rebel News around the world, to you at home, good night, and keep fighting for freedom. <laughs> <laughs>